This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band across Southern Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Jazz Arad on the show with me, Asanda Matsunyane, handling the news in a few minutes. We Sani Matibule with your latest in economics at around t- quarter to the hour. And Fikile Linguati with the latest in sports. Thereafter, our top stories here on Africa Digest this hour. The United Nations missions in the DRC help to have a peaceful political process for the upcoming elections. The world marks the International Day of Older Persons. In economics, Angola's central bank plans to further devalue the Kwanzaa this year. And South African swimming sensation adds another gold medal to his tally. You'll hear more about that in sport, but first, here's the news with Hasanda. Good evening. Authorities have imposed a curfew in a town in northern Liberia after violent protests following a wave of suspected ritual killings. The protests reportedly began after the killing of a motorcyclist on Wednesday. That killing came a day after the discovery of a body of a 13-year-old girl who had disappeared weeks earlier. A local police commander says one person was killed and several were wounded in the protests. Justice Minister Benedict Sano says six people had been arrested for the protests. The girl's death was the most recent in what is believed to be a string of ritualistic killings that have been blamed on politicians and businessmen seeking political power. Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza has issued a month-long ultimatum to Burundians possessing illegal firearms to hand them over to authorities or face the state's drastic force. In his message to the public on Wednesday, Nkurunziza called on all citizens with illegal weapons to heed his call. Bernard Bankunkira reports from Bunjumbura. In his Wednesday message to the public, President Pierre Nkurunziza loaded the work done by police and military forces, intelligence services, as well as the public, and containing insecurity in the country. 
revealed to have recently signed a decree guiding the disarmament process and giving a month to those with weapons to submit them. Many weapons have been seized and the government would like to ask again those who illegally possess weapons to hand them in as soon as possible. Afghan troops have recaptured the center of the strategic northern city of Kunduz after fierce clashes with Taliban militants. This comes three days after losing the provincial capital in a humbling defeat for Kabul and its U.S. allies. But fighting has continued in other parts of the city, whose brief capture represented a major victory for the insurgents. Residents say soldiers were conducting house-to-house searches and have removed the Taliban flag from the central square, replacing it with government colors. A Taliban spokesperson has denied the retaking of Kunduz and says insurgent fighters have withdrawn. During the celebration of Botswana's 49th anniversary of independence yesterday, Zambia's Foreign Affairs Deputy Minister Joseph Lungu extended Zambia's congratulations to the SADC country. Colonel Lungu reaffirmed Zambia's commitment to further strengthen the bilateral relations between the two countries through continued political and economic cooperation. May I, first of all, reiterate my government's congratulations to His Excellency President Selese Kama, Ayan Kama, and the Republic of Botswana for assuming the chairmanship of the Southern African Development Community. With Botswana's good track record of promoting democracy and good governance, Zambia is confident that during your tenure, SADC will go a long way. Finally, elderly people in South Africa's Limpopo province are celebrating International Day of Older Persons together with their Premier. The United Nations has designated the day to appreciate the contributions made by older people in society. Provincial government spokesperson Puti Siloba says the day also raises awareness about issues affecting senior citizens. Ourselves as a government, we, we are preaching the message that the elderly are our treasure, are our libraries, are our heritage, are our archives. And it's important that we begin to treasure them, protect them, and ensure that they're safe. It's important that we look after them. It's important that we continue to give them support. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matzaunyani. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And a very good evening. Welcome here to Africa Digest. Seven minutes after five Central African time, live from Johannesburg. I'm Jazar Rod. Good to have you. You've just tuned in. Well, stories we're looking at include, uh, well, we're looking at uh, a United Nations story. We talk about the independence of Nigeria, talking about terrorism network all across Africa and hotels investing in Africa, specifically East Africa and ECOWAS and how they're involved, as well as Médecins Sans Frontières, all of that and more. So don't touch that dial. Stay close here. DSTV Channel 902. You're with Channel Africa, and this is Africa Digest. Our top story, the UN mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has said it's doing its best to help Congolese have a peaceful political process for the upcoming elections. Monusco's statement has come out as the country's political situation is not too clear these days.
The UN's mission believes things will improve from before the elections, hopefully. Jean-Well Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. There is no stability as far as political situation is concerned here in the Democratic Republic of Congo these days after the ruling majority split that has been followed by a mass resignation within both the government and the parliament. Different personalities including ministers on both the national and provincial levels have resigned and the move is still going on. The very recent resignation is that of the governor of the mineral rich province of Katanga, Moses Katanga who has resigned this week. All of them have made the very same accusations against the ruling majority. They suspect there are strategies and a way to violate the constitution and help President Joseph Kabila remain into office after his last term. The UN mission here has then said it's doing its best to help Congolese have a peaceful political process and believes that things will improve before the upcoming elections. Charles Bambara is Monusco Director of Public Information. We are doing our good offices still at different levels, you know, at the special representative level, but also his deputies and also different head of department like the head of uh, political affairs at Monusco. So we are meeting a lot of people. We are discussing with a lot of people in a weekly basis. So we are still interacting with all of them to have a peaceful political process that will lead us to uh, the next election. And I think there are hope that this situation will improve. And I don't think it is normal in political, in election time that there is this kind of tension. But it needs to be controlled, it needs to be made in a way that, you know, people can still express what they want to express and if they want to meet, they need to be able to meet and to have political this is in all African constitution, in DRC constitution, and need to be respected. And indeed, most of politicians from the opposition and those who have quitted the ruling majority, as well as different human rights organizations, have denounced the human rights abuse in this country. That's one of the issues the UN mission here is concerned about, according to Monusco Director of Public Information, Charles Bambara. I think this is why our joint human rights office here in DRC is calling on the DRC government to really make sure that people freedom are respected, political party freedom are respected, you know, and this is all we are stressing the government to look upon and try to see how they can support this political process. And this is why also the High Commission of the Human Rights Organization in Geneva, in meeting these days, are also calling the DRC government to pay attention to, and I think it is important, we need to have a political climate that is really free of pressure, free of tension, so people can express themselves, can go to their duties and prepare this election. This election needs to be prepared seriously, and it is important that the current government help the international community to support them and uh, to have this peaceful election. The Independent National Electoral Commission planned the seven election series supposed to start this October, but the Constitutional Court asked the Commission to review its electoral calendar. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Thank you, Jean-Noël. Now, a virtual network of prosecutors working on terrorism cases was launched some two weeks ago in Zurich in Switzerland. The Counterterrorism Prosecutors Network, CTPM, provides a valuable forum in which prosecutors from around the world can exchange experiences and identify common challenges and how to address them. 
Now, according to the Independent South African Institute for Security Studies, the ISS, the network is an ideal vehicle to explore new ways to manage the increasing complexity of counterterrorism prosecutions. Cheryl Frank is the head of the Transnational Threats and International Crime Division at the ISS. Firstly, it's a very significant initiative internationally, given that it's the first opportunity for collaboration between prosecutors from all over the world um, to talk about how to prosecute terrorism cases. Now, as you know, terrorism is an international problem, and uh, there have been different experiences of prosecutions all over the world, and very few in Africa, actually. So for us, as an African institution, we're very excited about the fact that um, we have all all these important collaborators that have worked together to set up this network to enable better um, communication between prosecutors so that they can share information, advice, collaborate on legislative uh, reforms, and do a range of other uh, sharing activities, including training and capacity building. Now, Cheryl, what are some of the main challenges pertaining to terrorism cases which this network really seeks to overcome? Um, Several, in fact. The first one is quite important, which is the fact that often legislation between countries doesn't allow for collaboration between prosecutors. For example, there would be a case that um, takes place in Kenya. The suspect may flee to Mozambique, and the arrangements, the legal arrangements for the arrest and the um, extradition of that particular suspect may not be possible under the current legislation. It is to help harmonize legislation, firstly, and then it is also, secondly, to share information about how best to collect evidence and to use that evidence in the prosecution of particular cases. Many prosecutors all over the world have been doing this, and they can share their experiences. For example, you know that electronic evidence is quite complicated, yet it can be a very useful tool for the prosecution of cases in, in, in many different kinds of cases. Often electronic evidence, cell phone evidence, and so on, is difficult to collect and to transfer across borders. Um, So also it is to share some experiences on how to do that better. But I think the most important thing that this network offers is that it has, as one of its key partners, the United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. Now, this directorate is directly responsible for advising the UN Security Council on um, how to address the terrorism challenge and, um, and ways in which the UN can facilitate better prosecutions all over the world and strengthen our ability to deal with terrorists. So um, in, that, in that situation, the, the network is really important in, in offering uh, responses to the challenges that we're, we're currently experiencing internationally. That was Cheryl Frank, Transnational Threats and International Crime Division Head at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, and she was talking to Zikonami Iso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest live from Johannesburg. I'm Jazza Rod. Good if you've just tuned in. And of course, don't forget our economic report coming up at quarter to the hour. Sports update for Killers on the ball. Latest from World Super Rugby, World Rugby, and more. South Africa play on Saturday. Tell Everyone is a campaign aimed at reaching 7 billion people. Yes, that's how many people are on the planet. And telling them about the 17 global goals agreed to at the UN Assembly. Wow. The campaign using various media platforms to get the message across with 60 countries being involved. One of the innovative methods being used is a seven day pop up radio station, which will provide listeners with content dealing with the goals for sustainable development. Now, to help us look at the multifaceted global media campaign, wow, we have Lisa Henry, who's involved at the Global Goals Campaign in Africa. Martin Davies, everyone's Africa coordinator. You've got to listen to this. On Friday last week, 193 world leaders at the UN to sign these goals into existence. And that's actually the message of this campaign, to tell everyone these 17 global goals are a reality now. And we want the world to know what they are. Um, you know, there's 17 of them. If you're uh, into climate change, if you're into tackling injustice and equality, if you care about poverty, uh, no hunger, um, there's a goal there that you can get behind and feel passionately about. So that's the message of this campaign is to know these 17 goals, know your rights. You can't fight for your rights unless you know what they are. Mm. So this campaign just wants to share those goals with everyone. Yeah. Lisa, I like this kind of approach because I've been following the MDGs for a long time now in my journalism. And one of my uh, criticism was that they didn't really reach the ordinary person down the road if you weren't actually affected by poverty or uh, development issues, you wouldn't really own these particular MDGs and you felt like outside of that particular field, it almost felt like it was a humanitarian project for um, civil society and not even all the whole civil society, but rather for uh, NGOs or something like that. Uh, Why is it important for us as ordinary people to own these particular new goals? I agree with everything you've just said, I think the MDGs weren't widely known about by the man in the street. Um, there were eight of them. They were put together by the UN. Um, and, you know, only the people in the NGO world really understood and knew about them. And it was the British filmmaker Richard Curtis who really spearheaded this uh, campaign. He decided about a year ago to take a year of filmmaking to tell everyone about these goals. Because we don't know about them. You know, how can we act on them. And I think, you know, the UN also has done a lot more work this time around in going around various countries in the world, speaking to millions of people, asking them, what are the issues closest to your heart? And they've put together these 17 goals from that. So it's a much more real, Mm. honest set of goals um, that people can buy into and feel a part of than previous MDGs. 
We've got the Radio Everyone's Africa coordinator joining us, Martin, and making time for us. Tell us a little bit about this Radio Everyone pop-up radio idea. Where did it come from? Well, um, as Lisa was saying earlier, when Richard Curtis came up with the idea of uh, trying to make a, a plan to tell the world, tell 7 billion people in seven days about these global goals, it's incredibly ambitious. Thankfully, somebody said, look, if you're going to do that when you're in Africa and doing exactly what you're doing, which is broadcasting on the radio, you've got to use the radio in order to reach people because that is still the way that uh, so many people are getting their news and information. I still think it's around 90% in, in many countries of uh, people are getting their primary source of news and information by the radio. So thankfully, uh, people said, let's use radio and let's really make that work. So the idea, the concept of Radio Everyone was born, and then out of that they said, right, let's see if we can make a pop-up radio station. But if you do that, as you well know, you don't then automatically get an audience. You've got to then work with partners who've got existing radio stations, radio stations, audiences, and have a dynamic relationship with that audience in order to place that content within that context. And so that's what we've been doing, been pushing hard, um, in my case, across Africa, but it's been going on across the world as well. We've got partners from Australia to Latin America and deep into Europe as well, as uh, over about now 250, 300 in Africa. I'm also told that uh, the national broadcaster where we based, uh, the SABC, will also be part of it. But, uh, Martin, what's interesting for me is the content in itself. You know what? When you talk about the MDGs, I, I kind of switch off sometimes. I think uh, just the messaging was sometimes very pessimistic, very negative, almost um, hungry children. That's what you thought of. And just uh, travesty and crisis. Yes, there are all those things that are involved in these particular issues that are part of the sustainable development goals but hey how do we send the message in a more vibrant way in a way that's very clear not too depressing a way that we can actually buy into instead of not going into that same old drone of sad news well i think um as richard curtis has has, has often said the first part of this is to make the goals famous because if people know about them then they can get interested in them they can explore them um and that engenders further debate and then it gets it onto the agenda. So, for example, uh, there's been a, a huge use of celebrity. So today um, we're really pushing a show that we've put together with Haile Gerbri Selassie, uh, the famous, famous Ethiopian athlete. Well, everyone knows he's, he's a great man on the track. He's actually bad behind the mic as well. And so he's put together a show where he's talking to um, friends from the track and field, but also from the world of music. Yeah. And he's taking questions from young people around the world. And that's a way of kind of getting people involved by thinking, wow, I wouldn't mind hearing what Haile has to think. I know how good he is at running, <laughs> but what, is it, what are his yeah. views on music and things like that? That's Martin Davies, Radio Everyone's Africa coordinator. And you also heard from Lisa Henry, who's involved in the Global Goals campaign in Africa. And they were speaking to Channel Africa's Benjamin Moishatama. Moving on to Nigeria, President Muhammadu Buhari has addressed the nation in a televised speech to mark the 55th anniversary of the country's independence. Independence Day celebrated on 1 October marks the end of British colonial rule in territories that form modern-day Nigeria. Jane Matabula has this report. October the 1st is a day for joy and celebrations for Nigerians. Activities to mark the 55th day of independence kicked off with the national broadcast by President Muhammadu Buhari. In his speech, Buhari said despite the current circumstances, Nigeria's Independence Day, which marks the end of British colonial rule in territories that formed modern-day Nigeria, is still worth celebrating. 
Nigerians around the country have also expressed their joy at the event via social media. Situated in the west of Africa, Nigeria shares its borders with countries like the Republic of Benin in the west, Chad and Cameroon in the east, and Niger in the north. Nigeria is the most popular country in Africa. The capital of this African country is Abuja. Nigeria has experienced a turbulent history since achieving independence from British colonial rule in 1960. Thousands of people have died over the past few years in communal attacks led by the Al-Qaeda early Boko Haram and separatist aspirations have also been growing. After lurching from one military coup to another, Nigeria now has an elected leadership. However, the government faces a growing challenge of preventing Africa's most populous country from breaking apart along ethnic and religious lines. The former British colony is one of the world's largest oil producers, but the industry has produced unwanted side effects. The trade in stolen oil has fueled violence and corruption in the Niger Delta, the home of the industry. Few Nigerians, including those in oil-producing areas, have benefited from the oil wealth. In 2004, Niger Delta activists demanding a greater share of oil income for locals began a campaign of violence against the oil infrastructure, threatening Nigeria's most important economic lifeline. Nigeria is keen to attract foreign investment, but is hindered in this quest by security concerns as well as by shaky infrastructure troubled by power cuts. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Thank you, Jane. Now, as the world marks the International Day of Older Persons, an organization that works to protect and promote older people's right to health and improve access to care says the release of the World Health Organization's World Report on Aging and Health is a major shift in thinking on health in older age. Help Age International says it welcomes the WHO report, which helps move away from thinking about health in old age solely as the presence or absence of disease and instead looks at an older person's well-being and ability to function and do the things they want. Now, more from Nicodemus Chipfupa, Regional Director for Southern Africa, Help Age International in Pretoria, South Africa. Our work and focus is uh, on older persons' issues, and health is one of the key domains as part of our work because with, with advancing age, uh, health happens to deteriorate and therefore need for attention towards functionality. Now, what are some of the main issues that are highlighted in the report? The main issues um, are that uh, health is not merely the absence or presence of a disease. And when somebody affected by a disease into a clinic or hospital, it's an abnormality. Health is in society. And where somebody's having ill health, care systems from governance, family, friends, and so forth, have to recognize all that cycle and not provided in bits and pieces, which is the case at the moment. Now, why is it important um, with regards to the well-being of older people? And really, what are some of the recommendations that are coming through um, with Help Age? Um, It is very important, practically, first, because it is a fact that we are are in an era where older men and women are increasing by day. And therefore... Uh, thinking about uh, health in older age uh, in society has to be comprehensive, mm. be found in policy in order to be seen practiced when adequately resourced. It is also very important that um, the health 
facilities or systems take an integrated approach considering voluntary family community services already in place and that that such health services should be not only about the absence of a disease but where one is incapacitated mm-hmm. look into aspects to ensure somebody has dignity and is able to be functional mm. at all age cohorts. Well, that was Nicodemus Chipfupa, Regional Director for Southern Africa, HelpAge International in Pretoria, South Africa. He was on the line to Zikonami Iso. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, don't forget, coming up, straight off the news headlines, we've got an in- interview with uh, South Africa's Science and Technology Minister, Naledi Pando. Yesterday, we spoke to Professor Klingiwe Makizi, who is the Deputy Education Minister. So, um, we'll be chatting to Naledi Pando after the news headlines, and, of course, our economic report coming up at quarter to the hour with Wisani Matabula, and our sports report, Fikila giving you the updates and, of course, how South Africa will be faring in the World Cup. After all, we're one of the top two nations, or probably the top, but we just don't seem to get there, do we? Also, a seminar in Namibia, that's coming up later on. And Ntata um, Mahlangu has an interview with uh, Bonaventura Hinda, commercial counsellor at the Namibian High Commission. So, don't touch our dial, stay close. You were Channel Africa's Africa Digest. We through till six o'clock tonight. Now for the headlines, here is Asanda Matsunyane. Good evening. The UN mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says it's doing its best to help Congolese have a peaceful political process for the upcoming elections. The United Nations International Day for Older Persons is being celebrated at a time when Cameroon says older persons are increasingly being abandoned. And a new innovative financing mechanism to help increase resources for the fight against malnutrition in sub-Saharan Africa. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazarad. Good to have you with me. Now, today, several panel discussions took place at the Innovation Africa Summit in Kampala in Uganda. South Africa Science and Technology Minister Naledi Pandor shared information on how the country has been utilizing technology in education since 2004. Minister Pandor was in a panel with delegates from Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania and Namibia. She now joins us on the line to tell us more 
Honorable Minister, welcome to Channel Africa. I'm Jazar Rod. Uh, good evening, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, Minister Pando, yesterday I had the opportunity of chatting to Professor Fingue Mkise, who's the Deputy Education Minister, and she gave me also a little briefing. But what are the biggest challenges African countries are facing in introducing ICT to education? Well, uh, Deputy Minister Fingue Mkise is Deputy Minister of uh, Posts and Telecommunications uh, in South Africa. Um. Uh, but with respect to uh, your question... I think the uh, significant challenges are uh, challenges of uh, resource availability. That is, the cost of uh, technology transfer is still quite high. But secondly, also uh, issues of infrastructure Uh, in our schools. uh, We need electrification. Many schools uh, in rural areas don't have the appropriate infrastructure for the technologies uh, that are available And then thirdly, uh, the important need to ensure uh, what they call capacity development or training of teachers so that when you do introduce technologies, uh, teachers take to them and uh, use them effectively uh, for, uh, um, you know, teaching the uh, basic curriculum uh, uh, in the schools. But I think if all these uh, challenges uh, are addressed, you actually... Uh, find that you are able uh, uh, to make inroads in enhancing the quality of education. Are service providers getting your needs as governments, Minister? Um, From the service providers that I've been able to uh, speak to and whose uh, exhibitions I've visited, I'm actually astounded. Uh, at the amount of uh, technology as well as programs that have been developed to respond to uh, curriculum and educational needs uh, on the African continent but globally as well. Um, The courses available online, the training programs uh, for teachers, solutions for uh, e-health, e-education, even addressing Uh, the learning needs of uh, children with disabilities. Uh, So I'm, you know, really, really excited at the possibilities uh, that exist for uh, uh, entrenching uh, technology uh, within the education system and thus assisting us to really offer uh, young people a set of skills and learning opportunities that I think will make a real difference to their futures. Well, Minister Pando, you've preempted my next question, which was, was Innovation Africa worth attending this year? You've absolutely answered that already. So how do we ensure that the teachers understand the technology tools that they would be using? You know, I think uh, this is the big question, and I, I would think that uh, we have to be very careful about uh, just becoming excited at technology uh, availability as ministers and then uh, taking it as has happened in some systems and uh, placing laptops in uh, classrooms. Um, Young people, children take technology very easily as anyone would know uh, if their child has their smartphone in their hand. Um, So you actually have to, I think, speak to teachers, indicate the direction in which you're moving, ensure that you have a core 
that is trained, that almost becomes trainers of trainers, so that uh, there's a smooth uh, uh, adoption and, and infusion of yeah. technology uh, in schools. I think if you do that, you actually will find that teachers will take to it and they'll be a partner uh, with learners uh, in utilizing these new opportunities. So, Minister Pando, is Africa ready to introduce ICT to education? Well, listen, ICT is in African schools today. <laughs> I can assure you from what we've seen and what's happening in schools in South Africa, in Ghana, in Rwanda, in Kenya, uh, in Lesotho, in Namibia, in uh, Senegal, <laughs> technologies in our schools, that if we don't know that, uh, then I think we should wake up to technology as, as parents and as uh, communities because our children are just having a field day uh, yeah. with access to wonderful curricula, uh, wonderful uh, hardware, new programs. They're playing games, they're learning maths, they're learning language, they're writing tests, testing themselves, uh, forming social groups across Uh, national boundaries. So I'm afraid technology is happening and we as adults need to catch up. Minister Naledi Pandwa, thank you very much for joining us, South Africa Science and Technology Minister. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Right on. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. We had a uh, Minister of Science and Technology, Naledi Pandor, on the line there telling us that, yep, it is already available and soon it will be nationwide. Africa will be wired, so to speak. Yeah, broadbanded all across from Cape Town to Rabat to Cairo and all across coming your way. On to Namibia, actively seeking investment and partnerships with South African business as such the Namibian Chamber of Commerce and Industry today hosted a high-level Namibia South Africa business and investment seminar in Joburg. The seminar sought to engage South African companies and stakeholders to unlock joint venture possibilities for industrialization and business, exchange investment and trade opportunities, and explore investment financing opportunities. More from Bonaventura Hinda, Commercial Counselor at the Namibian High Commission. It went indeed very well. First of all, there was great interest from the business people here in South Africa. And equally so, the Namibian Chamber of Commerce and Industry led a 22-member delegation from Namibia. So from both sides, there was really keen interest. And uh, in terms of the information exchanged between the two countries, that has been very relevant to the companies as well. And I want to allude to the fact that both countries do see the importance of industrialization and inclusive growth and and resource beneficiation. Those are the key things really that uh, played center stage um, during the seminar. And and joint venture partnerships, that's uh, that's basically the key that we are looking into, both for bigger companies and SMEs. Now, what would you say was the aim of this seminar? The aim of the seminar was basically to unlock joint venture possibilities between Namibian business 
and South African business. Now, different from the usual, whereby a minister would be leading a delegation and business chambers would be on board, this is different. The Namibian Chamber of Commerce and Industry has taken the initiative this time around to report member-to-member chamber relations. And therefore, we have, in this case, the NCCI, which is the Namibian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, has partnered with the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry as really the overarching umbrella body of chambers um, here. And um, we are aware that it's only the JCCI and the Cape Chamber that are not uh, affiliated to SACI, and therefore we have not made this a Joburg seminar, but it was in fact a roadshow. And that started in, on Monday in Cape Town on the 28th of September. And there we partnered with the Cape Chamber of Commerce and Industry and the uh, Trade and Investment Cosmo Natal because the Department of Trade and Industry is also on board. In Durban, we partnered with the Durban Chamber of Commerce and Industry and the Trade and Investment Cosmo Natal. Today, it was also the Department of Trade and Industry as a national uh, ministry of, that is responsible for business and SACI. So it's basically chamber-to-chamber initiative forging relations and unlocking joint venture possibilities. That's basically the purpose. And what would you say about Namibia? What makes the country, you know, an interesting destination for investment? First of all, Namibia is a very politically stable country. And I want to allude to the fact that our president uh, was awarded the Ibrahim Prize for excellence in African leadership last year, as you may be aware. And that states the fact that Namibia is politically stable. We have had now three transitions of uh, political heads, of which our current president has taken um, the leadership over in March. So definitely political stability. The other one is because of the similarities, really, uh, between Namibia and South Africa. We need to appreciate the fact uh, that Namibia and South Africa has been one country before 1990. And therefore, it is relatively easier for companies operating from South Africa, but both in terms of economic terms and also um, in terms of just the ease of doing business and, and the language also. And, and company laws are very similar. So when you register a company, it is not something strange that you need to work with. The commercial banks that are here are equally in Namibia as well, with the exception of APSA. And um, the RAND is a legal tender in Namibia, so foreign exchange is not an issue. And um, so it's basically really the conducive environment that we provide in, in, in Namibia. And there are vast opportunities uh, because we have got a very low industrial base. And uh, if I may quote the trade statistics between Namibia and South Africa, on the Namibian side, although there's a discrepancy between what the Namibian Statistics Agency quotes and that of SSA in being that 51.6% is quoted by the Namibian Statistics Agency in terms of what we imported. And when I say 51.6, it's not percentage, it's billion uh, rands of worth of products that went out from South Africa into Namibia. On the contrary, 8.4 did go out from Namibia as exports to South Africa. So we are saying that is a clear indication that there is a captive market. There is a market. So there must be things for which we can, companies that are here can take advantage and perhaps assemble and not only look at the Namibian market, because we are 2.1 million. We are saying that uh, South Africa, as it is, already supplies countries north of Namibia, Angola, DRC, Zambia. So we are saying that um, we are part of SACO, we are part of SACAT, and these are free trade areas, now tripartite, 
and uh, Namibia is just uh, the place where they can expand to their core businesses and um, do business with the rest of Africa. That's what we're saying. Now, which were some of the sectors that were highlighted at this seminar where there are opportunities, you know, for people to invest in? Yes. Uh, First of all, it would be manufacturing. It would be agriculture and agro-processing. And I want to emphasize here um, the feedlot opportunities that are there and also crop production. And then uh, going on logistics, there are four corridors. Um, in Namibia, and that, uh, if I may start with the Trans-Kalari uh, corridor that starts in Wathis Bay and, and, and through to Gauteng, and um, the other one is Trans-Caprivi, that's from Wathis Bay again through to Zambia, and trans Kunini is from Wathis Bay to Angola, and uh, the fourth one is Trans-Oranye, which is again from uh, Wathis Bay to basically Cape Town. So those are the four corridors there, but the opportunities under logistics is to identify, and, and DBSA, I must say, that had a, re- a speaker representing the Development Bank Southern Africa here, has indicated their presence in terms of the cross-border infrastructure uh, development. So with that, they are looking at whether there are truck ports and the efficiency really of just moving cargo from one country to another. So logistics is the third one. The fourth one is tourism. And um, the, the other one is health, uh, in terms of health facilities and also pharmaceutical production. Um, another one is skills, basically artisans, all kinds of skills that we basically also need in Namibia. Another one is um, education and construction. I, I want to emphasize construction. Construction, uh, Namibia is busy with a mass housing project. We are looking at low-cost housing technologies that companies can take advantage of. And then also uh, the government is looking at um, infrastructure improvement by way of building offices. And uh, these are all opportunities that South African companies can join the partnerships with Namibian companies and and participate because it's not all the time that uh, Namibian companies do have the necessary capacity to actually deliver as the tenders required. So there are opportunities for South African companies to come in. That was Bonaventura Hinda, Commercial Counsel at the Namibian High Commission, on the line to Enflantha Matlangu. Time for our economic report with Sani Matabula, the money man. He's here to give you the latest. Thanks, Jaza. South African state-owned pension fund, the Public Investment Corporation, the PIC, says uh, that SAB Miller must remain listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange if the brewer gets taken over by AB InBev. SAB Miller, with a market capitalization of 94.2 billion US dollars, is the largest company on the JSC, accounting for 12% of its value. The PIC, which manages more than 120 billion US dollars on behalf of civil servants, is the fourth largest shareholder in SAB Mila with a 3.4% stake. An Anglo-American closed off uh, its uh, offices in Mozambique 18 months after calling off the 380 million US dollar purchase 
of a majority stake in a coal asset in the country. This as the company seeks to preserve cash in response to a commodities slump. Chief Executive, Chief Executive Officer Mark Kutifani told investors in July that the company would look at overheads and indirect in London. Johannesburg and all other regions. London-based Anglo says uh, despite deciding against buying a 58.9% stake in the Rivubu Metallurgical Coal Project in the northeast of Tete province from Tablot Group Investments, it expects to continue with its objectives of establishing a position in the emerging metallurgical coal basin in Mozambique. And French economist Thomas Piketty says a direct uh, distribution of wealth is needed to address inequality in South Africa. He says it's said that 60% share of the national income goes to only the top 10% of the population. Piketty will address the 13th and Nelson Mandela lecture in Johannesburg on Saturday. I think uh, South Africa should and hopefully will introduce a minimum wage. I think every country needs some form of minimum wage legislation, not only in developed countries, in, in, in Europe or the US, where we've had national minimum wages for, for a very long time, but also if you look in, in Brazil, the rise of the minimum wage uh, in the past 15 years, in particular under Lula, was one of the powerful force for reducing poverty, reducing inequality, and in the end it did not cost uh, jobs. So, of course, it's a matter of degree, and setting the right level for the national minimum wage is complicated, but in any case, I think this is uh, uh, something that's absolutely uh, necessary. The small and medium um, uh, enterprises is seen as a critical component to South Africa's economic development and transformation. Many have also argued that SMEs could be vital in job creation in the country. Dr. Manish Moores from the Department of Business Management at the University of Pretoria says policies in place will assist in the growth and development of local SMEs. SMMEs play a very important role in our current economy where we would like to use it as a vehicle to create jobs because our unemployment rate is so high and that is the main purpose of the small business policy is to help to create the enabling environment to assist with that growth and development. So therefore the small business sector is considered to be key uh, with regards to our economic development and growth. South African Petrochemicals Group Sasol has taken a wait-and-see stance on the possible resumption of crude oil imports from Iran. This follows a July 14 agreement which set the scene for the lifting of sanctions on the country. Historically, Iran is a major source of crude oil for South Africa. The company has uh, not had any talks about the resumption of crude imports from Iran. The agreement makes provisions for the International Atomic Energy Authority to verify Iran's compliance to nuclear issues. Sasol says it will re-evaluate its options after this. At the moment, uh, the majority of South African crude oil is imported from Saudi Arabia and West Africa. And let's look now at the market. Uh, the dollar at 13.88 South African rands at uh, 10.4 Botswana Pula and 12.22 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,114. Platinum at $902. Dollars a finance brand crude oil going down to forty eight dollars seventy two cents per barrel. That's your economics news.
Now time for our sports update. Here he is, the man of the moment, Fikile Lingwati. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. In our sports update this hour, starting off with swimming news, South Africa's Cameron van der Berg on Wednesday added another Fina Aweave gold medal to his tally after taking the men's 100 meter breaststroke title in 59.76 on day two of the action in Beijing. Van der Beek bagged a gold medal in the 50-meter breaststroke. Swimming South Africa CEO Sean Adrianza says he won't be surprised if Van der Beek wins the overall men's World Cup. I think he's very much in line to do that. His performance has been really exceptional. He's been the top performer consistently. And uh, yeah, you know, the South African swimmers between him and Chad have been dominating the, the World Cup series in the men's section. It's very likely that he, at the end of the series he might very well come away with being the overall uh, uh, winner of the, men's, of the men's part of the series. On to football news. The Confederation of African Football, CAF, has fined the Football Association of Zambia, FAS, 10,000 US dollars for crowd trouble during two international matches. The CAF disciplinary board handed FAS 5,000 fine for the fence pitch invasion at the end of the 2016 Rwanda African Nations Championship first round return leg against Namibia in Lusaka on the 4th of July. CAF have also imposed a similar fine on FAS for throwing an object on the pitch when the under-23 national team faced their Ivory Coast counterparts in the Senegal African under-23 championship qualifier at the same venue on the 1st of August. FAS General Secretary George Kasengele says the association is still waiting for the official communication from Kiev. And in our local football, defending Telkom knockout champions Super Sports United moved into the quarterfinals of the 2015 edition with a hard 4-2-1 away win over Pulukwane City at the old Peter Mugaba Stadium on Wednesday night. Super Sports United head coach Gordon Eggerson says he's happy with the win and that he's not the only coach under pressure. Do you think I'm the only coach and only team that's under pressure? There's six other teams in our league, you know, that are under these situations, you know. So it's, 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 not, it's not a matter of relieving the pressure. It's a matter of us just getting what we have to do, you know. There's pressure all the time, you know, whether you're sitting second in the log or sitting fourth in the log, there's going to be pressure, you know. And like I say, it's just, uh, there's a, all coaches are always under pressure. We all, we all, we've not been in the situation before, as you know, with Morocco Swallows, when I joined them last time, they had three points off the 15 games, never mind six points off the four games or five games. But like I say, I've never brought that up and I've never spoken about it because we've we got to just carry on and I know what I'm doing and we will get it right and and tonight was signs of that, and I'm very happy for that. And finally, with tennis news, South Africa's two top wheelchair tennis players, Khuta Zemunjane and Evans Maripa, have been knocked out of the Open de la Baye de Somme tournament currently underway in France. And that's your sport news this hour. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations.
This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories this hour, the UN mission in the DRC helps to have a peaceful helps to hope to have a peaceful political process with upcoming elections. The world marks the International Day of Older Persons. Angola Central Bank plans to further devalue the Kwanza this year. And in sports, South African Cameron does it again. Swimming sensation adding another gold medal to his tally. Wrapping up Africa Digest for today from myself, Jazar Rod, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Tumel Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you. You can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us through top of the hour, Shabalala by Sam Thing Soweto on Channel Africa. Of the people of the first kind Diluted into words that spit like gunfire Bubba box shot at the time upon the time When war on the world was as normal as but fly Installed in the mines Faster than emergency flies Come right past left And shrub past dead You might catch your feet Had to tap into my breath oh, my 